As the holidays continue, we thank you, of course, for listening to the program. Hope we're providing a little escape for you, maybe some uh, holiday travel listening. Thank you for uh, allowing us to do that for you. This week's EPP bonus episode, another one that we're giving to everyone in the vein of the holidays and the idea of you know giving. Uh, we have another really interesting episode in its entirety that's never been played in its entirety before. An interview with Sylvia Schultz. She's very well-versed on the history of the holidays and Christmas. And she gives us some very interesting and horrifically scary Christmas ghost stories. I hope you enjoy. Today on The Grave Talks, Christmas ghost stories. Who's ready for a Christmas ghost story? Author Sylvia Schultz has compiled one of the best collections of true ghost stories from the ghosts of Christmas past. We hear the all-too-real story behind a famous tale told by Edgar Allan Poe and how it came to be. The tale of a man who loved Christmas music so much that even after his passing, the music continues to play from the side of his cabin in the woods. Also, the true story of a train tragedy that occurred around the holidays. It takes the life of nearly 100 individuals. Years after, the train lights can still be seen. But who is on board? These and many other ghostly Christmas stories on today's special holiday edition of The Grave Talks. Well, I am always on the lookout for interesting ideas to turn into books. And the way this came about was absolutely out of the blue. I work at a library and um, I had just finished up writing, I I think I just finished up working on 44 Years in Darkness, I believe, but um, I was casting around for another idea, just, you know, just wondering what what the next idea would be. And I, I went to the book drop and pulled out, I think it was um, either a CD of Christmas songs or uh, a book on CD of Amish Christmas stories, like Amish-themed Christmas stories. Mm-hmm. And the light bulb went on. I said, oh, Christmas ghost stories! Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> so th- there was the next book, and I pitched it to my publisher, and I looked, I went and, and looked to see how many books of Christmas stories, of ghost stories, were out there. And I thought the market was just going to be saturated, but it turns out there's not a lot out there. And I pitched it to the publisher, and he said, oh, yeah, you could write about this and this and this. Hey, wait a minute. Why am I not writing this book? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Write it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Oh, I mean, it, yeah. it's a topic that, uh, obviously, there's there's ghost stories in a lot of European culture, um, but yeah. American culture, not a lot of connectivity with the ghosts, unless you're, you're watching you know, certain movies and such. But uh, mm-hmm. it, it is a topic that you're exactly right. You would think there'd be more out there on it we get a lot of stories around christmas time on on both of our shows uh from folks mm-hmm. who said hey you know i got together with my family for christmas and i heard this ghost story or that ghost story <laughs> so so when when you decided hey i'm going to do a book about christmas ghost stories concept is great but then digging in and finding them how did that go well i am a fiend for reading. I will sit down and read before I do anything else. So my research for this basically consisted of sitting down and reading every book of true ghost stories I could possibly get my greasy little paws on mm-hmm. and picking out the ones that happened in December sure. and Christmas and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And once I got that collection of stories of material, then I broke that down into what's a creepy story that happened any time in the winter and then mm-hmm. any time in December and then Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Okay. So there's there so there's obviously a lot that you found. What do you think it is about the the holidays and Christmas when it comes to true ghost stories? Why is it that sometimes spirits seem to make themselves known at that time of year? Well, Christmas happens to fall very very close to the winter solstice. That's when the the, the darkest 
night of the year. It's the night with the long, the, the day with the longest nighttime hours and the fewest hours of daylight. And we've got the summer solstice, and it's wonderful. We're out having picnics, and it's 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 the the longest day of the year and the shortest night, and we have all these hours of sunshine. But during the winter solstice, it's exactly the opposite. It's chilly. It's spooky. There's more hours of darkness than at any other time during the year. And that's, I think, why the veil gets a little thin during the winter solstice. And Christmas time is a very good time for telling ghost stories. I mean, we think, we think, well, you know, ghost stories, the window of opportunity for that closed November 1st, didn't it? But it's, it's really a good time to, to huddle indoors and keep warm by the fire and tell ghost stories to keep yourselves entertained. Well, and also, if, if, you, if you put up, um, if, you, if you harvest your apples in October and press them into apple cider and let it sit, by the time Christmas rolls around, you've got a really good batch of Applejack brewing. <laughs> <laughs> And if you hit it too soon, it's just spoiled apple juice. <laughs> right, right. But so, if you save it yep. till Christmas. <laughs> just got to let it sit. Be patient with it. So yeah. another thing that I that comes to mind just over the years of getting ghost stories from folks on our shows, obviously the Christmas being a time of, of year that... It, 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 it runs the gamut of emotions. Um, there's, there's very, it absolutely does. There's yeah. happy memories. There's, there's lonesome memories. There's, I mean, it, it can be a joyful time, or it can there's be one memories. of the most, yeah, regretful, depressing. It can be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that that probably plays a bit into it uh, as well, as far as just the the human emotion side and the energy side of things when people, oh, absolutely, are uh, are are in that time of year, whether they're with loved ones or not. So let's jump into mm-hmm. some of these stories that that you discovered and and take us through some of the the most poignant ones that that have stood out to you in your research in your book. Okay, absolutely. The first one I'm going to share with you involves the horror writer Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, Poe was born in Boston on January 19, 1809, and he, when he was 18 years old, he enlisted in the Army. And his first posting was at Fort Independence on Castle Island in Boston Harbor. So he wasn't very far from home. He, he just had a hop, skip, and a jump for his first Army posting. So uh, one of the Sundays he was there, he had some free time, so he decided to walk around this island and explore the fort that was his new home. And he wandered down outside the fort's walls, down to the water's edge, and he found a monument there with some inscriptions on it. He was like, well, that's kind of weird. Let's, let's check this out. So on one side of this monument... There was an inscription. The officers of the U.S. Regiment of Lieutenant Erty erected this monument as a testimony of their respect and friendship for an amiable man and gallant officer. And Poe was like, hmm, wonder what the story is. And then on the other side of the monument, he found another piece of the puzzle. It said, beneath this stone are the deposited the remains of Lieutenant Robert F. Massey of the U.S. Regiment of Light Artillery. Near this spot, on the 25th December 1817, fell Lieutenant Robert F. Massey, aged 21 years. And Poe, being a budding writer, said, all right, there's a story here. I'm going to find out what it is. So he started asking around very quietly, see if anyone knew the story behind this monument. So what he discovered was that 10 years earlier, in the summer of 1817, there was a lieutenant named Robert Massey posted at the fort. Everybody liked this guy. He got along with everybody. He was fair to his men, and he was a a good companion to the other officers. But uh, there was another fellow at the fort. His name was Captain Green. And he was just a bully, plain and simple. Nobody got along with him. He was just a jerk. Uh, But Robert Massey tried to make friends with Captain Green, and it just wasn't working. So Christmas Eve, Massey, Green, and a couple other officers were, they got together for a game of cards, and they were playing cards, and and, um, 
Massey won the hand of cards they were playing just about midnight on Christmas Eve. And he you know, put his winning hand down and he said, hey, Merry Christmas to me, you know. And Lieutenant Green, or Captain Green rather, got up and just smacked Robert Massey across the face. He said, you cheated. You cheated and I demand satisfaction, which meant a duel. And Massey is like, ah, I can't back out of this. Even on Christmas Day, that's the rules of the duel. You can't back out. So on Christmas Day, he and his second went to the dueling grounds, and they had a duel. And Captain Green was bound and determined to win, and he ran Robert Massey through and killed him. So Robert Massey's friends buried him with all the honors and um, decided to do a little digging about this Green character. And what they found was that Green had a history of picking fights with guys. He was basically a serial killer with the sanction of social custom on his side. He would pick duels with people and he would kill them. So not a nice character at all. Mm-hmm. So um, he, uh, Robert Massey was buried with, with all the honors, and um, pretty soon after Massey was buried, Captain Green just sort of disappeared. And there was a, an effort to look for him because he was an army guy, but the, the higher-ups decided, well, he just went AWOL, I guess, and he was just quietly forgotten. But what actually happened was that a few nights after Massey's death, Massey's friends went to Green's room with a bottle of booze and a couple of glasses and invited Massey to start, or invited Green to start drinking with them. And they kept pouring his, filling his cup, and he was like tossing them back. And they got him knee-walking drunk. Then they grabbed him by his arms and frog-marched him out to the fort to the deepest, darkest dungeon cell they could find. And by the time he sobered up to realize what was happening, they had chained him to the wall and had started bricking up the cell. It probably took Green a very, very long time to die in the pitch blackness, screaming for help that would never come. Edgar Allan Poe found out about this 10 years later, and he was sniffing around doing some research. He's like, this is a really cool story. And the higher-ups called him into the office and said, "Uh, look, this is army business. Don't go poking around. Don't go telling this story. Don't go spreading the story around. And Poe's like, it's okay. I I won't tell anybody the story. That's fine. But then he started writing, started his career, and he was like, Nobody said I couldn't write about this. So Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story called The Cask of Amontillado, which involves someone being buried alive mm-hmm. in retribution. <laughs> so there's there's Poe's inspiration for The Cask of Amontillado. Very interesting. There's the, a little bit... <laughs> the, 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 you yeah, have, the, there's the, a little more to the story. Okay. Yeah. I was gonna say, it's very... Uh, in it's, this is very interesting that but, to hear the backstory on what, uh, what yeah. one of these stories is. Continue on. <laughs> well, in 1905, they were doing some uh, restoration work on the fort, on this old Revolutionary War fort, or 1812-era fort, and um, they, they were comparing the prison cells that they knew about to the fort's original floor plans, and they realized, this, this restoration crew realized that the fort's the, the cells didn't quite match up. So they're like, they're, you know, doing their exploration of these prison cells, these uh, dungeon cells. And they're like this bricked up area of wall. And they're like, well, that's not on the floor plans. What's going on here? So they start taking the bricks off and they shine a flashlight in. And one guy kind of sticks his head through through the hole and he jumps back out again real quick. And he goes, there's a skeleton in there. (laughs) And they take more of the wall down and they shine brighter flashlights in. And there was a skeleton dressed in the tattered remains of an 1812-era army uniform. uniform. The wrist bones were still enclosed. 
in shackles, rusty shackles. There were shackles around his ankles. And the skeleton's jaw was open in a silent scream. Wow. (laughs) That's just one of those stories where you're you're like, this is just going to be in a movie, you know, but it's it's, it's like this. This is why movies get those ideas, because a lot of times this stuff happened somewhere. And uh, and that happens to be where it happened. That's a great, uh, yeah. a great. Uh, you know, it, 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 it didn't involve Christmas trees, and it didn't involve Santa Clauses. But uh, you know, it, it, it certainly would be one hell of an entertaining Christmas day if you were a witness to the uh, the original Duel Day of that. Families mm-hmm. don't don't do duels anymore on Christmas. Unfortunately, that kind of came out of fashion years ago. Uh, but right. uh, <laughs> I don't know. I say give it time. I think it could come back the way that a lot of family gatherings have been going in the last couple of years. Oh, <laughs> all the opposition. I oh, think, yeah. Bring in politics. And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You get duels all over the place. I think we could start seeing this happen again very <laughs> in the next couple of years. Just wait. Let's bring this back. Make it a thing. <laughs> <laughs> a renaissance Christmas, so to speak. So uh, tell me some. Uh, tell me another uh, Christmas ghost story that uh, that is in your archive uh, in uh, in in your book, the uh, the spirits of Christmas. Okay, well, here's a really wonderful one. We'll go from gruesome to heartwarming, okay, and a little bit spooky too, because these are ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fellow who retired from the Baltimore and Ohio Rail Line, and this engineer was known for his love of the Christmas season. Um, every December, he would buy just sack loads of candy and make up little bags of candy. And whenever the train would pass by, um, you know, kids' backyards, where the tr- kids were waiting to wave at the train, he'd toss these sacks of candy out to the kids just in celebration, like this rolling mobile Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would sing Christmas carols on the train all December. And just he was a really jolly guy. Now, when he retired, he got enough from his retirement package to um, buy a phonograph and a set of Christmas records. So uh, he he just really enjoyed, he had this little house out in the woods, and he just enjoyed filling the woods with the sounds of Christmas. Um, in, uh, he, he passed away in the uh, late 1950s, early 1960s. So his relatives cleaned out his little tiny house and um, you know, took his phonograph and took his records and somebody else got them. And his little tiny house was left empty in the woods. In 1968, the B&O tracks were taken up and not replaced. They just left the rail bed there as a trail. And the old man's house was taken down as well, so there's not even a crumb left of it. Um, The only thing that was left was this track bed, and hunters would use it to go in and out of the woods. Mm -hmm. So um, years and years after the old man died... um, not long after 1968, when his, when his um, house was torn down, there was a hunter out in the woods two days before Christmas, and he was driving his truck along this track bed looking for a good place to get out and hunt. So he had stopped. He was driving very slowly, listening to the sounds of the forest around him, and he stopped because he heard something really out of place in the middle of a forest. He started hearing Christmas music. And it wasn't only Christmas music. It was Christmas music that was obviously being played on an old vinyl record, mm-hmm. on a very old Victrola record player. And he, he stopped his car and he turned off the engine. He was listening more carefully. And he was like, am I just hearing things? What's going on? And all around his truck, this music was just threading through the trees. And he's like, okay, I'm really hearing this. This is weird. And then he goes to start his car, and his car won't start. And he's pumping the ignition, and he's, 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 he's pumping the gas, and he's trying, cranking the key, trying to get the car to start, and it just wouldn't turn over. And then the hunter something caught his eye moving in front of him and he saw the ghost of an old man crossing the track bed and he the 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 specter of the old man crossed the track bed and walked to an old house that had suddenly appeared in amongst the trees 
and the guy, the, the, the ghost of the old man, went into the house, closed the door, and as he did, the music got fainter and fainter and finally disappeared altogether. And as soon as the music stopped, the hunter was able to start his car. And he slewed out of those woods. He came to town. He told everybody what was going on. He's like, this is scary. This is spooky. This is creepy. And a couple of teenage boys heard this story, too. So they're like, oh, man, we got to go out and check this out. So the next day, Christmas Eve, they go out in their car, and they, they're hoping to have the same experience. They're like, this guy was scared out of his wits, but we really want to hear this. So they drove on the track bed out to where the old engineer's house used to be, and they turned off their cars, and they waited. Now, they didn't see the old man or the house, but they did hear the Christmas music, and it sounded just like an old Victrola with a scratchy record that still worked, and they heard the music, and again, it wasn't until the music stopped that they were able to start their cars and drive out of the, out of the woods. And they went back out a few nights after Christmas, but no dice, nothing happened. It was just quiet winter woods. So the legend has it that this only happens in these woods during the days leading up to Christmas Day. And after Christmas Day, it's over for another year. Do you think something like that when that occurs, it is, is it a conscious entity a conscious ghost where he's literally back there and he's turning it on because it's christmas time or is it something to do with the cycle of the seasons and the residual you know energy that was there around that time for so many years from that gentleman who had such a passion for christmas i would really love to think that that's an intelligent haunting Mm -hmm. but it has all the earmarks of a residual haunting to me Unfortunately, I would love to think it's actually an intelligent thing, but I I think it's just a residual. But it's cool nonetheless. It is. It it is very cool. Uh, Something that that a lot of people associate with Christmas time, obviously, we, you know, there's Polar Express. Trains have always been something that that is associated with more of the modern Christmas or modern, (laughs) speaking back to the 1800s, modern. Uh, But it's obviously an, an image that many associate with the holidays. Are there any stories involving ghost trains or anything of that nature that you're aware of around the holidays? Uh, well, there, hmm, there is a story that is not in the, it's not around the holidays. This is one of the Christmas ones. Mm -hmm. Um, so continuing on there, uh, this is, uh, you asked about phantom trains Mm -hmm. And this story is about the crash of NBR-224. This happened in Scotland, and it involves uh, the locomotive for uh, a locomotive for the Northern British Railway. On December 28, 1879, there was a huge storm going on. Um, there were, the, the train was approaching the Tay Bridge between Dundee and Wormit, and it was approaching it at speed. And the the gale force winds were blowing and making the bridge creak. And as the train reached the middle of the bridge, um, there was the the bridge was under so much stress with the locomotive going across it and the gale force winds blowing the struts underneath it that the bridge collapsed. Uh, NBR two two four and all of the cars on it went into the freezing waters of the lock. Seventy five people died that night, including, oddly enough, the son-in-law of the guy who designed the bridge. Uh, Some of these bodies were never recovered. They're just lost in the dark waters of the lock. Um, The locomotive itself was actually able to be salvaged. It was raised from the bottom of the lock and put back into service. Um, it was reconditioned. It was reconditioned, and it was nicknamed the Diver, which is just ominous and creepy. And uh, they also rebuilt the bridge using some of the struts from the old Tay Bridge. 
And some of the engineers that were called upon to drive this locomotive were like, nope. <laughs> mm-hmm. You think we're going to drive that locomotive over that rebuilt bridge? You are high. We're not going to do it. Wow. Uh, it <laughs> but the diver actually remained in service until 1919. So it was still in service for, for a couple decades after this tragedy. Um, but for years, witnesses have said that if you stand on the shore of the lock near the Tay Bridge at 7.15 on the night of December 28th, you know, the anniversary of the accident, you can see the ghostly lights of a, a locomotive coming across that bridge, and you can hear the screams of the people and the screech of the brakes as the tragedy repeats itself. Yeah. So... That's, There's your phantom train. <laughs> that is just a ghostly image and just, uh, God, it, it, just the idea of being stuck in the train car. Number one, just, you know, you, it combines like so many disasters into one because you're, you're, you're falling from the sky. Uh, you're, you're in a large transportation vehicle. So it's almost airplane crash like in a certain way, the way you're falling down. And then it becomes dropping through the air yeah. and then landing in water. And then they're like, yeah. in a ship. Yeah. It's like everything. It's like, hey, it's a three in one. If you ever had a fear of like, dying in a plane crash or or being in a shipwreck or drowning or drowning, uh or train it's like mm. it, you get the best of all it's just, it's so yeah, so like the trifecta of horrible ways to go <laughs> it's so dark <sighs> yeah it, that, gosh well well let's jump back into some more of the uh the christmas ghost stories that you cover in the book uh absolutely whatever direction you'd like to go whether it be dark whether it be heartwarming uh I, i'm i'm open I, I love the christmas ghost stories and I'm sure the folks are enjoying hearing some some Christmas ghost tales as everyone's getting ready for the holidays. Okay, well, let's do one for Christmas Eve. Okay. This is the story of Sir Hugh's Goblet. This story takes place um, in Hatherton Hall in Staffordshire, England. This was towards the end of the 19th century. Um, the Lord Hatherton, who lived in the hall at that point in time, um, he held this great big Christmas party for his friends, and the women of the of the couples went out to another manor house to dance for the entire evening, and Lord Hatherton and his friends met in the Lord's study and started drinking. I mean, there's you know there's cigars and there's port and there's brandy and wine and stuff. And Lord Hatherton was known for the quality of his cellars. You went to a party at his house, you knew you were going to be drinking and drinking well all evening. So the guys are milling around the study. They're having a wonderful time. And one of the men goes over to Lord Hatherton's desk and he picks up this paperweight. And then he sets it down really quick because it's a human skull. And it's the, it's the top part of the skull, and it's lined with silver. And he, he puts it down. He's like, ooh, he's like wiping his hands on his shirt. <laughs> and Lord Hatherton picks it up, and he's you know, tossing it from hand to hand. He's kind of grinning, he, and he explains what this human skull is doing on his desk in his study. He said, this belongs to an ancestor of mine, Sir Hugh Hatherton. And Sir Hugh had been buried in a tomb in a private chapel. But somewhere along the centuries, his tomb had been ransacked, and his skull had been taken from its tomb. And one of his descendants ended up with it, and he thought it was amusing to line it with silver and use it as a goblet. Like, how cool is this? This is my ancestor's skull, and I'm drinking out of it. And uh, some of the guests were like, oh, that's cool. And some of the guests were like, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but Lord Hatherton was like, yeah, you know, let's, let's make this better. Let's open a bottle of brandy from my cellars and we'll, we'll all pass this skull around. We'll all drink from it. We'll, we'll drink Sir Hugh's health. How's that? Will that make you feel better? So that's what they did. He called a servant, and the servant got a bottle of brandy, and he fills up the skull, and he's passing it around. And everybody ended up drinking from this skull. And by this point in the evening, they're all pretty sloshed. And uh, it gets to be about midnight, and the clock strikes midnight. And somebody had put the skull, which was now quite empty, on Lord Hatherton's desk. 
And as the clock struck midnight, the skull rolled off the desk and landed with a clatter on the floor. Everyone turns to look. They're like, okay, that was weird. And then they hear footsteps in the hall. And this is not the light footsteps of their wives coming home from an evening of dancing. No, these are a man's heavy footsteps coming towards the study door. And then the study door slams open and there's the specter of a knight in full armor. And he looks around the room and he points to Sir Hatherton, Lord Hatherton. And the knight gives this really sarcastic bow. And then he turns on his heel and he walks away down the hallway. And everyone in the study is stone cold sober at that point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And their wives come back from their evening of dancing about half an hour later. And everyone went to bed and some of the guys slept with the lights on. (laughs) They were so freaked out. And then in the morning, they went into the study and the skull was gone. They found the silver lining of the skull outside the study window in the bushes underneath the window. But the skull itself had vanished. Well, someone didn't like people drinking out of his brain. (laughs) Yeah, no. Not the way to impress your ancestors. No, that's that just seems like a very dark way of uh, of celebrating. In in uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I have to. Add, I mean, when you're you're researching this and you hear a story like that of someone using a skull uh, as a goblet, so to speak, was that just unique to this individual, or, or had that been something that was done to a certain extent at a period in time? Oh, that was definitely a thing. The Celts used to make goblets out of the skulls of their enemies because they admired them so much. They figured, hey, you know, if I if I drink from this guy's skull, Mm -hmm. I will get his courage, the the courage that he had to face me in battle, even though he lost. Yeah, (laughs) I'll still still get that mojo. So yeah, that was definitely a thing, especially the ancient Celts. I wonder how you would uh, clean a skull to be uh, to be drinkable. Uh, I mean, boil it. Yeah, boil it. Okay. Yeah, I suppose that yeah. would be your best bet. Um, yeah, you don't really have yeah. like the uh, the sanitized option on the dishwasher at that point in time. <laughs> right. But uh, and I expect the best way to be would be to turn it over and slice off the top, about the the edge of the nasal cavity, and use the the calvarium of the skull, the 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 cap of the skull instead of the the bottom of it because you had the jawbone and you know stuff would leak out but if you used the cap of the skull that would be a a better way to hold liquid you've really thought of this haven't you you've uh (laughs) (laughs) well actually don't want to get on your bad side merry christmas I, (laughs) i i have i have a skull that i i use as a candy dish Okay. On my table when I when I do book signings, um, it's it's one of the the reproductions. It's from a, a laboratory supply house. It's mm-hmm. not an actual skull. Okay. It's like plastic or something, but it looks realistic. And I used to take it camping and eat oatmeal out of it in the mornings. That freaked people out. It was awesome. That would be great in a campsite. You're just sitting there. People are like, "Oh, let's go for our morning jog." And there. Oh, that's great. That's uh, that's a way to get somebody to look at you. <laughs> wow when it comes to uh to ghost stories obviously there's a lot of tales that uh, that go back uh quite a ways uh how about some more present do you have any more present day ghost stories that uh, or accounts that people have have had uh involving spirits whether it be loved ones or whether it just be the house gets pretty damn active around the holidays i found some things like that mm-hmm. uh we'll we'll do a modern one and then we'll we'll go back in time and tell one of my absolute favorite Okay, that would be great. This story is fairly recent. Um, It was shared with me by an author friend of mine named Stephen Lancaster. He is a paranormal investigator as well. And, you know, 
every paranormal investigator has their own origin story and you know what is it that got you into the paranormal and what piqued your interest and Stephen's story is really fairly epic this happened um in december uh december 14th 1987 uh lancaster was um, a kid he was um he was 10 years old and his little brother was five. So the family had just moved into a new house just several months before that. And Stephen recalled for me that they were so excited because it was the first Christmas in the new house. And um, the, the bedroom where the boys slept was kind of chilly. Uh, the house was heated by a coal furnace and it really kind of struggled to heat the whole house. And Stephen had the top bunk. He was the older kid, and I remember this from I'm the older of, of the, the I'm I'm the oldest of five and I remember fighting for the top bunk when I was a kid. And you know, you get the top bunk because you're the oldest and that's the cool place. Uh, so I can understand this. So on the top bunk it was even chillier because the heat didn't rise quite that far, but you know what? It was worth it because it was the top bunk. So the night of December 14th, um, Stephen and his brothers, his brother had gone to bed about nine o'clock. But, you know, kids, I mean, going to bed and actually going to sleep mean two very different things, especially for young boys. Um, they horsed around for a while and they're, they're kind of keeping it quiet, trying to stay off the parental radar. So after a couple hours of this, Stephen's little brother was uh, kind of tuckered out. He was ready for sleep, and he fell asleep pretty much almost immediately. But Stephen, on the other hand, kind of lay awake, tossing and turning, and about 1 o'clock in the morning, he finally fell asleep, too. A little while after that, he came awake. He was kind of still muzzy with sleep, but he realized that something was pulling on his ankles gently and he was like uh it's probably my little brother and uh he, he leaned over and hung his head over the top of the bunk and leaned looked down into the bottom bunk and his brother's fast asleep it's like oh okay and he's like, all right, you know, he just he just got back into bed really quick, and he's just playing a trick on me. So he snuggles back down into his warm blankets, and he closes his eyes again. And then he feels another tug on his ankles. And this one was harder. And he leans over the rail bed again and, uh, and looks down, and, and his, his brother is just, just looks dead to the world and he's like man this my little brother hopped up there and yanked on my ankles and then then get got back into bed that quickly that's that's really weird and then he realized that as he's thinking about this he's starting to wake up a little bit more and he realizes that it's really impossible for his brother to do this sort of thing and then he realizes still that something is pulling his blanket down to the foot of the bed. And he's still looking at his brother. And his brother's completely asleep. So he's like, okay, that's weird. So he sits up and he reaches down for his blanket to pull it back over himself. And something grabbed his wrists. And he told me, he said, imagine someone grabbing you around the wrists. That, you know what that feels like. This felt exactly like that. Something was holding on to me and not letting go. The skin around my wrists was actually indented as if someone were physically grabbing me. And the way he wrote about this was, it's a complete description of stark and utter terror. He can see that something has a hold of his wrist, but he can't see what it is. And it wouldn't let go. It was still pulling him down to the foot of the bed. Uh, it yanked him forward so that he completely flipped and he was facing the foot of the bed. And he tried to drag in a breath to scream, but it was like trying to, to scream yourself awake when you're dreaming. He's, he can't get a sound out and he 
finally, he finally broke free of whatever it was, and he had been tugging so hard that he overbalanced and crashed into the wall. The back of his head hit the wall so hard that it left a dent in the wooden paneling. And when he got free of whatever it was that was holding him, he finally got his voice back and he screamed, Mom! And his parents came running in and his little brother was roused from sleep and he's like, what in the world's going on? And the parents came in and and Stephen stammered out this incredible story that had just happened to it. And even though there was a head-sized dent in the wall, his parents were just like, well, you know, he just had a really vivid nightmare, and that's all it was. Just just go back to sleep. And they, they calmed the boys down, but a paranormal investigator was born <laughs> that terrifying night that Stephen never forgot that, and that was his introduction into the world of the paranormal. Now, in 1987... Both of Stephen's parents dismissed this story. He was raised in a Christian household, and there just wasn't room in their belief system for something like that to happen. But many years later, Stephen said he was talking with his mother, and he reminded her about that night. And she decided to share her secret with him when she herself was 10 years old. The exact same thing happened to her. Wow. Something at the foot of the bed grabbed her ankles and then grabbed her wrists and pulled her towards the foot of the bed. She actually had marks left on her wrists from where she was pulled towards the end of the bed. That's so bizarre. I mean, is that like a rite of passage type ghost where we're going to do this to everybody? (laughs) It's a genetic thing, a hereditary thing that happens to Lancasters. Well, that family, I guess, because she wasn't a Lancaster when when that happened to her. Yeah. But yeah, that was. To to have that happen at the same age, same time, uh, to to one generation to the next, that is so bizarre. And I don't even know what to make of that. As to why that would be. I know, it's fascinating, isn't it? It is. It is very fascinating. Well, you had mentioned that you have some, two ghost stories, I believe, here, that uh, they're some of your favorites that you've compiled. Let's hear some of those before we uh, wrap things up for today. We we still got plenty of time, but I'd love to hear some more. All right, super. So one of my absolute favorites is the story of the wreck of the General Arnold. Okay. Um, the, the year was 1778. It's in the middle of the Revolutionary War, and King George III was not about to let his colonies go without a fight. So he was really making things hot for the colonists, and the colonists desperately needed supplies. So some of the colonists that were better off would offer their own ships. If they were merchants, they would offer their own ships to bring supplies down the coast from Boston to where the colonists were fighting in Virginia. So the General Arnold was one of these ships loaded up with supplies, and in December it sailed from Boston and set sail down around the East Coast heading towards General Washington and his colonists trying to bring some aid to them. By Christmas Day, the ship had gotten as far as Gurnet Point, right outside of Plymouth Bay. The captain, James McGee, anchored there, and he wanted to send for a boat to take him into Plymouth Harbor because he knew that there were shoals at that point in the harbor, and he really wanted a local mariner to guide the ship, the brig, in safely because he knew there was a storm on the way. But the storm had already started kicking up and nobody was willing to come out in a boat to guide the brig into safety. So he was kind of stuck there. He wanted to go back to Cape Cod and shelter in the in Cape Cod Bay for the duration of the storm, but he wasn't able to make it that far. He was kind of stuck on the White Flats in Plymouth Bay. And then the storm hit. There was freezing rain, there was snow, there was winds just pounding this brig. 
and it was being it was stranded on a shoal it was being forced further into the sand by these gale force winds it was listing in very shallow water and it was really in trouble and then the storm that had been menacing the ship for several hours turned into a nor'easter it lasted for three days with wind and snow and freezing rain just pummeling this poor ship Um, the snow froze to the sails and the lines of the ship the captain mcgee ordered everybody below decks and the the winds were so strong and the waves were pounding at the ship so strongly that the the seals the it, it started opening cracks between the the boards that made up the the ship's belly and wind started and rain started coming in through the cracks we're like well the, this isn't going to do us any good so he ordered everybody topside again by this time this the tide had come in and there's waves crashing over the deck and the the guys are just freezing they're really miserable and the storm is continuing to pound the general arnold um Around sunset on Saturday, December 26th, the tide went out again, but the wind started. They're they're no longer being pounded by the waves, but the wind shifted and brought bitterly cold temperatures. And then the tide came back in, more waves crashing across the boat. These these guys were really, really suffering. Um, They were trying to avoid being washed overboard, and the sailors were clinging to the rigging of the ship and just freezing where they were, freezing to death where they were on the ship. By the next morning, 30 of the men were dead. So the survivors were like, well, what are we going to do? There's there's no shelter below decks. There's no shelter above decks. So they took these frozen bodies and stacked them into a windbreak. Now, by this point in time, uh, the storm had been going on for two days. The people of Plymouth realized that the General Arnold was stranded on the flats out in the in Plymouth Bay. And they could see the ship, but they couldn't get to it because the storm was still so strong. There were ice flows in the bay, and they just couldn't get to it. They spent the night of December 28th. Um, I'm sorry, the the night of December 27th to the morning of the 28th, they spent that night stacking up these ice flows to make a bridge from the land out to the brig. So on the morning of December 28th, they were finally able, the wind died down, and the people of Plymouth were finally able to make their way out to this brig. And they're like, is anybody going to still be alive on this ship? Well, it turns out that not very many. It was a crew of 106. Three of the men had left during the storm. They were never heard from again. They took a little rowboat to try and get help, and they were just lost to the storm. Seventy of those 103 remaining men were dead. They found 33 survivors. Of those survivors, nine men died later. So the townspeople of Plymouth brought the survivors back, cared for them, and they decided that, you know, we can't leave these bodies just sitting on the ship. They're like, well, what do we do? Okay, the courthouse in Plymouth. That's the biggest building in town. It's got a lot of open floor space. We'll put the bodies in the courthouse. They found out that they had a really horrifying problem. The, me- the bodies that had been stacked up as a windbreak were frozen together in this mass of clothing and flesh. And they couldn't get that block of frozen meat through the courthouse door. And they didn't want to hack the bodies apart. They didn't want to be disrespectful. Yeah. So there's a little freshwater stream right next to the courthouse. And they put this block of frozen human flesh into the stream and let the fresh water flow over it. And I can only hope that they got their drinking water upstream for a while until this was done. And that's the way they thawed the bodies out. And they laid them in rows on the courthouse floor. And as they were doing this, 
there was one of the men doing this grisly task noticed the body of Barnabas Downs, who was the 12-year-old cabin boy on the General Arnold. And the guy was taking care of Barnabas's corpse, and he realized that Barnabas had a tear leaking out of one of his eyes. And then Barnabas blinked. He was still alive. And they, they rescued him from the middle of this pile of corpses, and they thawed him out, and they rescued him, and he survived. He was 12 years old when the General Arnold was in trouble and, and well, not sank, but, but ran aground. Mm-hmm. And he lived into his mid-50s. He lost both of his feet to hypothermia, to, to gangrene, uh, sure. frostbite caused by the hypothermia, but he survived and he wrote a book about his experiences. And in the book, he wrote, as bad as the pain of losing both my feet was, the pain of being thawed out was so much worse, but he actually survived that. So let's go back to these bodies that are on the courthouse floor. Yeah, The people of Plymouth realized that, you know, loved ones were going to come looking for these bodies, and several of the bodies were claimed. But what had happened was that a lot of these men had signed on in Boston Harbor, and Captain McGee had not had time to enter their names into the ship's log before the storm hit. So a lot of these guys were just John Doe's. Nobody knew who they were. So after several weeks of these corpses laying on the courthouse floor, the people of Plymouth said, we really need to bury these guys. Um, This is getting gross. So uh, they took them out to the old burial hill, which is just outside, just out the back door of the courthouse. It's very, very close. And they had dug a refuse pit on Burial Hill, it was about 10 by 20 feet, and in, they had dug it before the ground froze, and they just respectfully and reverently laid these bodies in the, the garbage pit and made a mass grave for the sailors of the General Arnold and buried them there. Now, Captain McGee survived. He lived until 1801, and when he passed away, he requested that that mass grave be opened and he requested to be buried with his soldiers that did not survive the tragedy of the general Arnold. So captain James McGee is also buried in that mass grave. I've been to the Plymouth courthouse. I have seen the boards on which these corpses lay and those boards were so sodden with blood and bodily fluids that they had to take up the boards and turn them over because they were so stained with gore. And that has left a big, deep psychic imprint on on that building. You can hear, if you're um, (laughs) upset, the building does not have bathrooms in the main part of the building. Mm -hmm. Um, They eventually put restrooms for men and women downstairs in the basement, and you you have to go outside the courthouse and go down around and get into it through a basement door. And if you're in the ladies' room, which is directly below the courthouse, you can hear thump drag, thump drag on the floor above you and what that is is the residual sound of bodies being put and arranged in rows that is disturbing now the the yeah. the, the wood that's that's you, you said you've you've seen the wood so is it literally just flipped over like you'd flip a mattress yeah. so, and it's it's the yeah, original exactly. wood that's still there yeah, wow. yeah, they, they they have not replaced the floorboards. They just turned them over. So those are the original floorboards in in the uh, Plymouth courthouse. That's amazing. It was amazing. That that's one of those things where if, if at some point in time they're like, okay, we're really going to truly replace the floor now, but we'll we'll sell these this wood in batches to people who'd like to have that look in their home, and uh, <laughs> and you can I buy so get some of that. Buy the planks today on Etsy. You know, it's it's just <laughs> it's like, oh, can I get one with a little more brain matter on it? It's like, wow, that's. 
That is just interesting. Cause you think of it all the time because I, I see all the time on, on online people selling reclaimed hardwood from, from old floors. And I can only imagine sure. if that were to be done with that wood. Um, I, I could totally yeah. I could totally see it happening, though, you know, 50, 60, 70 years from now or, or, or longer, where maybe these stories, I, I don't know how they would ever be lost to time, considering how long ago this happened and we're still talking about it. But if someone's just not mm-hmm. aware of the story and they're in possession of that building and they're just completely oblivious and they're they're doing this and getting rid of the wood and, and we're wondering, well, why is it got all this on it? I'll, I'll sell it cheaper. And then somebody gets this stuff. Yeah. Ew, it's sticky. Yeah. That is that no. is interesting. No, it's not sticky, but after all this time, it's not sticky. Yeah, it's, but, it's um, settled in. It, the courthouse is now a museum. Okay. And there are letters on the wall. This is just tangential to this story. But there are letters on the wall from people who have taken stones and pebbles and keepsakes from the old burial ground right out the back door and have sent them back to the courthouse museum with a letter saying, I'm really sorry. (laughs) I took this stone from the old burial ground and bad luck started happening to me, so I'm sending it back to you. (laughs) Please replace it in the burial ground. And yeah, there are several stories, there are several letters up on the wall about people who have mistakenly taken souvenirs and got more than they bargained for yeah that's why you don't take things from haunted places did you have one more ghost story you you wanted to share uh, on today's episode okay uh one or two just one what what's your favorite (laughs) okay my it's like saying what's your favorite child one of my (laughs) one of my another one of my favorites okay is the story of number 149 squadron okay this comes from the Air War and World War II. And late in 1939, this was the very early days of the Air, Air War. It was kind of a time of uncertainty for the British Royal Air Force. The German Luftwaffe was very strong at that point, and it was very aggressive. Um, it was terrorizing civilians on the ground, and it was really decimating the ranks of the RAF. It, the RAF hadn't gotten very strong at that point in 1939. Um, they were kind of testing themselves against the Luftwaffe. Um, they, they were really struggling to find their place. A lot of pilots were dying. Um, a lot of the planes were flying out of Mildenhall Base in Suffolk, England. And um, the pilots of number 149 squadron flew Vickers-Wellington bombers. Vickers-Wellingtons are huge, bulky things. They carry a lot of ordnance, but they have to have a fighter escort. They can't really defend themselves on their own. And the German fighter planes were just tearing these Vickers-Wellingtons apart. They They were bulky, and they couldn't really get out of their own way. Excuse me one moment. They needed an escort for these, these vulnerable bombers needed an escort, but there were very few British fighter planes available. So they weren't as effective as they could have been. And radio silence was of paramount, paramount importance at that point in time. They didn't want the Germans listening in on their plans. So when the bombers left, the ground crew could do nothing but wait until the entire squadron came back or failed to come back. Mm -hmm. So these missions were timed so that the Wellingtons took off during the daylight hours and tried to get back before darkness fell. Now, on December 18, 1939, we're coming up on the winter solstice. We're coming up on the shortest day of the year, so they didn't have a lot of daylight to work with. So um, the, the air strip was lined with paraffin lanterns. <coughs> and they also had, um, a, when the bomber got close enough to see the airstrip with these paraffin lanterns lit, there was something called a chance light. It was a big spotlight that the, the ground crew could light and aim at the airstrip so that the plane could see the land. It was a bright yellow beam that just lit up the runway. Mm-hmm. So that day, nine Vickers Wellingtons had taken off from Mildenhall Air Force Base. 
two of them developed mechanical failures right away and limped home without having the chance even to get across the channel and drop their payload. The seven bombers were still out, were flying in wretched conditions. There was heavy cloud cover, the snow had started to fall, and the temperature started dropping to well below freezing. One plane straggled in just past 5 p.m. A couple more followed a little bit after that. That left four bombers unaccounted for, and it was starting to get dark. The snow started falling more heavily as the clock ticked. The late afternoon gloom faded to full night. And now the bombers were more than an hour overdue. The ground crew set up these paraffin lanterns and they had the chance light at the ready. They had the sinking feeling that, you know, these four bombers were not back yet. I, we don't know if they're coming back, but we'll get everything ready just in case. Half an hour passed as they waited. Then one of the officers at the ground crew lifted his head and he started listening. And even in the hush of the falling snow, they could hear a sound up in the air. And the, the other members of the ground crew perked up and they're like, okay, we, we definitely hear a plane and it's definitely head, heading to the Air Force Base. But something was wrong. Instead of the smooth drone of the Vickers' two powerful engines, what they were hearing was this choppy, choking cough. This was a plane that was in serious distress. And they could tell, these, these mechanics know their planes, and they could tell that the plane coming towards them was not a Vickers Wellington bomber. They could tell just by the engine sounds it's not a Wellington. So they light the flares, they light the paraffin lanterns, they fire up the chance light, and that lights up the, the airfield with this yellow glow. And then they stand and watch as this plane comes towards them. What they saw was not a Vickers Wellington bomber. What they saw was an ancient, fragile contraption. Rotted bicycle tires spun on the plane's undercarriage. The wings were tatters of fabric. And this fabric surrounded the open cockpit of an FE-2 from the early days of World War I. This FE-2 bomber came so close to the ground that the ground crew could look up and see the pilot. He had goggles on, he had the, the scarf blowing in the breeze, and he, they, could, he, they could see his helmet on his head. And the pilot thrust a gloved hand over the edge of his cockpit and dropped something. And the object landed with a tink, 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 on the tarmac. And then the pilot pushed the ancient relic to its full power and motored away into the darkness. One of the ground crew ran over to the object that the pilot had dropped and picked it up. And he's turning it over in his hands. It was a wrench with a piece of paper wrapped around it. The mechanic unwrapped the paper and everybody crowded around to read the handwriting on this piece of paper. And what it said was, Wellington Aircraft N2961 was down. It wasn't shot down over the continent where the, where the air crew would have had a chance to bail out or, or be taken prisoner and survive. No, the pilot had coaxed the Vickers bomber as far as he could, trying to get back to Mildenhall, but it was lost over water. It had gone down in the sea 40 miles from the nearest air-sea rescue outfit. And the plane on everyone on board was lost to the water. Well, that's a way to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, why... Did this FE-2 biplane yeah. from World War I appear in the skies over Mildenhall to deliver this tragic news? Well, in the Second World War, I mentioned that number 149 Squadron flew Vickers Wellington's bombers out of Mildenhall Air Force Base. Sure. And a generation before that, 
British pilots pioneered the air war flying from airfields in France. Number 149 Squadron from the First World War flew FE-2 biplanes. So th- this appears that this is the spirit of, of someone else coming back to to deliver of the message. someone else in 149 Squadron, yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, how would you even explain that as as a service member to your family? It's like, how was your you Christmas? You just yeah. accept it. <laughs> well, listen to this. You accept this yeah. gift that you've been given. I, I think they think you were crazy. <laughs> They'd think like, okay, well, the war is taking his, its toll on him. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that is a chilling. I mean, it, it's a, it, it's chilling. It's it's there's, there's so many emotions in that one. That is so interesting. Wow. Yeah. That wraps up part two of our interview with Sylvia Schultz about Christmas ghost stories. Be sure to check out her book, available wherever books are sold, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Until next time, thank you for supporting the program. I'm Tony Bruschi. Happy holidays.